Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. My guest today is Dr. Nick Sotelo. Nick is a professor at Corbin University in Salem, Oregon, in the Department of Clinical Mental Health Counseling, where he teaches graduate students mental health counseling. He also spent 22 years in youth corrections, and his focus right now is helping men get control of their anger, especially when it has wreaked havoc in their lives. We had a great conversation that I hope you all will enjoy. Let's welcome Dr. Nick Sotelo. Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. Thanks for allowing me the space to come on your show and and have a conversation. Awesome. Uh, why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself, um, your background, just so everyone understands where you're coming from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do a lot of things. It's a hard question for me to answer. You know, what do I do and whatnot? My wife usually jabs me uh, in the in the ribs when I give kind of a ambiguous response to it. So she's not here to jab me, but uh, I'll do my best to to answer it. Um, I guess if you were to look at my my full time gig right now, is I'm a full time professor at Corbin University, which is in Salem, Oregon, and I teach in the Department of Clinical Mental Health Counseling. So I teach graduate students. Um, mental health counseling so that they can go out and, and be counselors however they uh, find that to come to their life. Prior to that, um, I had a 22-year career in youth corrections, working at the state level uh, in the state of Oregon. That was my first career right out of undergraduate school and uh, was there for uh, 22 and a half years. And so that's where the, the bulk of my real-world experience, clinical experience in uh, nitty-gritty real-life experience comes from. So married and got two sons. Uh, one's a sophomore in, in high school and a sophomore in college. And yeah, i am just uh, always been a helper of people and trying to help people reach and realize their potential. And my current primary focus with that is helping men to get control of anger, especially when it's wreaking havoc in their lives. Okay. So yeah, we're going to mostly talk about anger and mental health today. So what are the different types of anger? That's a good question. I think that it's, it's, it's an important question. And that's one of the things that I think gets missed oftentimes when people are getting help for anger or they're, you know, they're going through some form of self-help or, you know, what, whatever that initial process is for them is, I think that question, like, what are the different types of anger? Um, and I think the next question is, is what type of anger trips me up the most as an individual? Um, I think that most of the time that type of question isn't presented uh, and of course, if it isn't presented, then somebody doesn't have the opportunity to sift themselves through it. Okay. But you asked me a question, what types of anger are there? I think categorically, there's two categories of anger. There's constructive anger and there's destructive anger. And what do I mean by that? I think that people, and particularly men, are conditioned to view anger as a negative thing that they need to remove from their life, they need to remove from their experience. What I've come to learn, understand, and experience is that anger is one of the four primary feeling states, alongside of mad, sad, well, 
glad, sad, and afraid. Mad is the the corollary for for anger. And they're there. They're hardwired in us as people for survival purposes, right? And so there are things that go on in in everyday life that cause anger to arise, and that's okay. What typically gets labeled as not okay uh, is how we respond to anger, right? So if we if we respond to anger in a way that um, is damaging to ourselves or, or damaging to our environments or the people around us, that's what gets labeled as the issue. That's what needs to be controlled. That's what needs to be managed. But the feeling itself of anger is just anger. And there are appropriate times for anger to be present. So categorically, what, what types of anger are there? Uh, there's destructive anger and there's constructive anger. Okay. So what are the like physical and emotional symptoms of anger? And does that differ between constructive and deconstructive anger? Yeah. So, and again, this is a very individual type question. So I'll, I'll speak generally about what I've seen and, you know, I'll, I'll cover a lot of the territory, but uh, every once in a while I'll get somebody that will describe a, a symptom or sign of anger that I haven't run across. Right. And so always being open for that uh, nuanced experience when it comes along the way. So you know, so there are biological signs. If if you're when you become angry, it's you got to think about anger as a warning sign on a dashboard, and it's going off, it's blinking red, and it's telling you, hey, there's something going on right now that needs your attention and probably needs you to respond to it, right? So that's that's one way to think about what what is anger. It's just a it's a warning light on your dashboard. Okay, so your physical dashboard in real life, what is what is that? Watch well, your body, right? And so. Some people will report and this uh, will report, you know, getting hot under the collar. I mean, that can be a sign that you're getting angry. Some people's pace of speech will increase, right? So they start talking faster with a faster pace and cadence can make them harder to understand, right? So if they aren't able to communicate clearly when they're angry, then that feedback loop comes to them, which then serves to uh, make uh, fuel the anger even more. Um, some people will talk about seeing red. Some people will talk about seeing nothing, blacking out. Those are kind of on the extreme ends of uh, being in a probably more of a rage state that can build on top of, of anger. So those are some signs. Frustration, physical signs, tightness in your jaw, clenching your teeth, tight in the shoulders, clenching fists. I mean, those are all kind of the, the standard things that I would teach somebody um, to be aware of themselves when they're becoming angry okay is that something that you so do you teach people to pay attention to the physical symptoms to to read recognize they're getting angry before they might mentally recognize yeah, absolutely it? so there's okay. usually a mind um, body disconnect meaning that most people i mean right now uh, already wiggle your left toe right well you your, your left pinky toe has always been there. It was there, you know, in your environment, yeah. in your shoe. But until I told you to focus on it, you probably weren't thinking about your left toe, right? And so most people have a uh, mind-body disconnect. Uh, and those are things that um, helping people become more aware uh, and integrate mind and body is a huge piece of this. And that doesn't only apply to anger. It applies to lots of different things in, 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 in our lives, right? So most people have a mind-body disconnect. Um, and so, so absolutely educating them. Um, sometimes people are so disconnected from this 
that when we try to talk to them or when I talk to them about the anger, physical signs in their body, don't have an idea, don't have any idea of what I'm talking about. And so when that's the case, then it's asking people uh, that know them. It's asking friends and family, Hey, when, when I become angry, are there things that you notice about me? And they'll usually, especially kids will tell you if, you know, if, if it's safe enough for them to tell you, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you what it, what it looks and feels like, you know, when, when, when you get angry in their presence. So, so yeah, it can be a really uh, ground up education process. And for some people, the, the disconnect is, is significant enough that you really have to then look externally for people to give them the feedback. And I do want to say though, that if somebody feels that way, when they've heard this again, it's probably not your fault. Um, these are things that I think should be part of the parenting and education process. Uh, we, we just don't do a very good job of helping people understand um, primary feeling states. Um, you know, we, we teach them yeah. primary colors in kindergarten, but do we teach them primary feeling states? Right. And so, um, it's not, a, it's not a blame or shame thing, right? There's, you had help to get to that place in life where, where anger is getting the best of you. So what are the most common reasons people struggle with anger and what are some common triggers yeah. for it? Yeah, I think the, the struggle point is when, when you respond uh, in a destructive manner to anger, right? So you're angry and then um, you say you say hurtful, mean, violent things, right? You threaten violence. I'm, you know, I'm going to kill you. Or I hate you. Um, you know, I never want to talk to you. I mean, those are all those are all things that um, can happen in response to anger, and that damages the relationships, right? Some people throw things, break things, destroy things. Then some people get physically violent, road rage, those types of things, right? And so those are kind of the the obvious, you know, external negative. Um, issues that come along with, with anger. Okay. Second part of your question already was what, what, what are the signs? And then we'll, forgot what the second part. What are some of the common triggers? Triggers. Okay. So most of the triggers, I, again, trying to reduce it, they, they come out of control and boundary violations, right? So if somebody feels like they're, they're out of control, then they will, they will use some sort of, They'll tap into some feeling state, not always anger, right? As a means to regain semblance of control, right? And so, so anger can be that okay. tool to like, I'm feeling powerless. I'm feeling out of control. I'm angry. And so therefore I will, I will act in with anger type behavior in an effort to regain my power, reassert myself, regain control. Uh, so that's kind of, that's called the, the, you know, what I call the, the destructive anger cycle, right? And you, you, can, yeah. you can, and it, the problem is if it works for you, right, then you're going to do it more. And if it works for you in the context of friends and family, then you're going to be in a situation where you're going to be doing increasing damage to those around you to the point to where you may not be able to repair it. So triggers, I mean, it could be as simple as what people say to you what people yeah. do to you, pet peeves, right? People talk about pet peeves or for some people, pet peeves, you know, can quickly turn into to episodes of being anger, being dismissed, um, ha having boundaries violated. Hey, so-and-so person, I want to let you know that I don't want you to do X, Y, or Z. Person comes along, does X, Y, or Z, and, and then you become angry 
And depending on how you respond to it, it's going to make things better or worse. Okay. And again, oftentimes I, I will come across people and they don't actually know their triggers for anger. Right. And so that's why it's super important for them to have a good process on the front end to really know what, what anger is and, and exactly how anger is impacting their life because you can't, it's hard to do much intervention wise until you have a good read on, on those two things. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, with being out of control, being a big trigger too, because the situation that comes to my mind is road rage. And when you're in your car, obviously you, you can control your car, but you can't, you can't control everyone else around you. So you're very out of control in that situation. Um, you, you touched on constructive anger. Yeah. So one of my questions was, can anger be used for good? And what are the positive aspects of anger? Great question. Yeah. So I, I am a believer in righteous anger, right? If you, if you, again, it's that warning sign, right? A anger is anger. I'm also make a pretty big delineation that anger isn't secondary to anything. It doesn't have to be in the classic anger management method or movement, which I'm fully trained in. You know, we'll, we'll say things like anger is a secondary emotion. Well, it could be, but it doesn't have to be right. So okay. if you're moving about your day, you're at the grocery store, you're dropping your kids off to school. You're, you know, my life is revolved around my kids and their activities, right? You're, you know, coaching sports or whatever. And you see a parent that is physically smacking around a child. Well, I think the anger is an appropriate response to that, right? There's a, there's an injustice that's going on and you believe in, and know that it's not right. So I think anger is an, is an appropriate feeling state when you're exposed to that situation. Now, what you do in response to that feeling state, well, that's a, that's a different topic, right? So there is, there is righteous anger, child abuse, child neglect, you know, the, the, the social, you know, the, the universal kind of social agreements that exist across most cultures, right? Lying, cheating, stealing, yeah. those types of things. So when those things happen to us, it's okay for anger to be one of the feeling states that it comes about in that situation. Okay. And you mentioned it's about how you react to it. So what are some of the healthy ways to express yeah. anger? Part of it is just being able to name feeling states. So going back to, you know, what can parents do? What, what, what are my recommendations, especially for young people is doing that education. It's letting it's it, mad, sad, glad, and afraid. Those are the four primary feeling states. And so with a young person, it's telling them about that, mad, sad, glad, and afraid. And then it's guiding them through when you feel mad, what are the things that are out of bounds and what are the things that are in bounds that you can do when you're feeling a certain way? And you do the same thing with glad, sad, and afraid, right? And so one of them is just being able to name it, right? We all know what it's like to be around that person who's feeling something, but because they don't communicate it or they don't name it, it leaves us to guess what it is that they're, they're experiencing. Right. And, uh, and specifically with males, if you see a male in a feeling state that's escalated, but they're not able to articulate it or name it, then we're just going to probably assume that they're angry and that might not be the case. Right. And yeah. so, so being able to name it, that's one thing you can do. I'm feeling angry right now. Right. And then, having a predetermined list of what can be done in moments when you're feeling angry. I'm feeling angry at right now. I need to take a, a few minutes to step away from the situation, right? 
I'm feeling angry right now. Can we continue this conversation another time? I'm feeling angry right now, but, and I don't know what else I can do. Can you, will you help me figure out something that I can do? Right. Those are all kind of in the moment things that somebody could respond to in anger to have a better outcome. The goal there, when, when you're flooded with anger, the goal is two, two part. One is to respond to it, to keep things from getting worse. And to, if you can do that, and then um, have an effective response to it, right? So keeping things from getting worse is, is the first thing, right? And so meaning that if you're angry and he said something that uh, was damaging, well, recognize it and then stop, right? Stop stop saying any more things as much as possible because you're just going gonna to make the situation worse there. So some of this is, it's got to be pre-learned and predetermined. And then, again, this is where I think a lot of approaches miss the the amount of work that's necessary on the front end so that a person can actually practically know and learn what to do in those moments, right? Because not everything works for everybody. Yeah, definitely. So if an individual came to you for anger management, how would that work? Like, uh, what would the process be? So first, I would want to know as much as I could about them. But basically, I want to know what they're up against. And I work best with people who are really up against it, meaning that you know, they're maybe at risk of losing a job. Uh, they're at risk of divorce. They're at risk of kids not wanting to have anything to do with them. That's who I work best with. And I attribute a lot of that to my background in correction. I've been accustomed to dealing with higher acuity, more complex cases. And that's where I think I do my best work. So that being said, it's, it's really a three-part process. The first phase is really understanding yourself and understanding how anger is has been in, entwined in your life, and really understanding uh, how it's doing damage to your world. It's that understanding process of the you know the mantra that I use here is a a problem well defined is a problem half solved. And again, a lot of people will jump to the fix it phase, and they start using strategies and techniques, but they don't really understand themselves well enough and how anger is part of their life. And so it's hard to match up techniques and strategies when you don't really understand what's going on. So that's really the phase one. Phase two then is building your resilience to anger. Okay, so phase one is about, okay, who am I? What is anger? And then what do I do in those moments when I'm becoming angry, right? Um, Anger response tools is uh, kind of where that caps off, which is good. But then people will always say, well, but I don't want to be as angry anymore. Let's let's work on that, right? And so that's the resilience phase. You got to learn to take new and different perspectives. One of the techniques that I teach here is called the rule of sevens. I heard it on talk radio one time, to be honest. And uh, but it's this idea of those triggers that you talked about, Artie. Uh, what are your triggers? So when you're faced with that yeah. trigger, um, somebody cuts me off. We'll use road rage. Am I going to care about this seven seconds from now? Well, I might, as long as if I'm following this person, right? Am I going to care about this seven minutes from now? Probably not because I'm going to be on my way and you know, I'm not going to ever be, be you know, worried about what that person is doing anymore. Am I going to be worried about this um, seven hours from now, seven days from now, uh, seven weeks from now, seven months from now? People who really struggle with anger and they're stuck in that destructive anger cycle will put something that they could and should be worried seven years from now in the same bucket as something that they won't be worried about seven seconds from now. Right. They don't know how to differentiate mm-hmm. the two. Right. And so, you know, almost being run over by a car 
yeah, you probably are going to be worried about that seven weeks from now, right? But being cut off in a road, you know, in a, in a driving mishap, you know, seven minutes from now, you're probably not going to care. So why, why treat it like, you know what I mean? Like a life and death, you know, situation. Yeah. So that's what I find is that people will, will, they need to expand their perspective. And that's about, that's one of the things that we do in the resilience building phase is, is really helping them identify what it is that they really want in life and how getting angry uh, over every little thing is actually pulling them away from, from those things in their life. And the third phase, which is what makes my program um, unique. And I say that not just because I want to make myself stand out. It's because I've been trained in anger management and anger control, right? I've taught it to other people. I'm certified uh, in those things. Um, So the third phase really is about, which is really the anger resolution phase. So it's, it's beyond control and it's beyond managing. It's the resolution piece. And I believe for myself personally and the work that I've done with other people that the resolution piece comes with forgiveness. So you have to be able to forgive yourself for the things that have happened in the past, the things that you've done in the past. And you have to be able to forgive other people who have wronged you. And until you go through that forgiveness phase, uh, those wrongs that you're responsible for, the wrongs that other people have done to you, they're going to fuel that anger, right? And even if you kind of, this was my story, I had a I had it compressed down, let's say 95%, right? But there was that 5% that was still there. And that 5%, you know, if it's a can of gas, can explode, right? And you're right back into it. And so yeah. um, it's really going through that uh, process of, of forgiveness, which is what removes the fuel altogether and then allows you to have more of a constructive response 99% of the time right? And less concerned about a de- a destructive response to it. So hopefully that answered the yeah. question that you had for me. Yeah, definitely. When I think about anger management, I, and pop culture specifically, I can think of two pop culture references. There's the movie anger right. management and Adam Sandler movie. And then uh, Seinfeld comes to mind. Um, Serenity now. And the dad is, uh, George's dad is saying Serenity right. now. It, it seems like it's not portrayed accurately at all. So are there any myths about anger management to be aware yeah. of? Yeah. And I think that, you know, some of those things that get depicted there, right. You know, in, in uh, the Adam Sandler movie, right. It was goose Favre. That's, that's what you were supposed to say when you were becoming angry. So what, what those yeah. things are, those are, those are mental interrupts. We call them thought stoppers. Right. And that's, that's definitely one of those strategies or techniques that's part and parcel with anger management. Right. Um, it's part of my program too. But what I teach people is, is picking specific thought stoppers that actually match their specific situation. And so just generally training people to say goose favra, again, using from that, from that example, that might help yeah. some people, but it may actually make some people even more frustrated in the moment, right? Because they can't say the word, right? So myths, uh, I think one of the myths is that the anger iceberg to me is a myth. That's that idea that anger is a secondary emotion. I separate feelings from emotions. For me, thoughts combined with feelings equate to the emotion. I think we need to make it simpler. Mad, sad, glad, and afraid. Master the primary feeling states. Then you can move on to emotion. But when we hammer emotions and we give people like the emotions feeling wheel, and there's like 200 words on it, and you're trying to help somebody who struggles with anger, who doesn't know who they are and doesn't know what anger is, 
and you're trying to tell them to pick all these emotional words, again, I've, I've seen that process fall flat and, and have it actually do more damage than it does good. Myths that, you know, we talked about it, right? I mean, is it, is it, when I say that anger can be constructive, most people aren't, they aren't aware of that. Most people will automatically equate anger as something that needs to be removed from your human experience. But there's also an awareness piece that I think is super important, especially for men. So when you look at societal conditioning, and especially in the U.S., men and boys get conditioned to connect primarily with the feeling state of anger, right? Not okay to cry. Don't be sad. You got nothing to, you know, what are you crying about? And so we, we will condition boys to be cut off from um, sadness. You don't want to be afraid, right? Because if you're afraid, then, then you can't be, you know, fully masculine, right? So then we're left with both glad and mad. But then if we're a little bit rambunctious and, and obnoxious, when we get happy, then we get told to to knock it off and quit doing that. So then, so then we get left with 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 mm-hmm. mad or anger as being the primary feeling state that we connect with. So then, when that person doesn't get the support that they need going through life, and then anger becomes their primary feeling state that they connect the most with, because they've learned to disconnect from the other ones, and then something happens. There's an incident, a fight at school, whatever it is. Then they get referred to anger control or anger management where the primary message is don't be angry. Don't be so, don't, 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 don't be so angry. Right. Which what you're functionally telling, I'm focusing on men because I think women have a different construction around anger. What you're functionally telling a male is not only is anger not okay, but your feelings in general are not okay. Right. Because they've already been uh, conditioned to disconnect from the other feeling states. And so I, I want, yeah. if, if there's one thing that, that people are hearing this to take away above anything else is to, to understand that anger is a normal, natural feeling state. Problem comes in is that when we have uh, hurtful or less than effective ways to respond and express our anger, right? And anybody can Im- improve around that. So that's what I would say are some of the myths. I know it didn't exactly get into the myths, but uh, uh, nonetheless, that's what I think is important around anger and particularly men. Okay. Thank you. Um, you mentioned that you don't believe it's a secondary emotion. Can you dive into that a little bit? Because when you were talking about the four emotions, what I would assume is a, a secondary emotion would be you're sad, but then you act out with anger. That's what I would think you mean, but it kind of doesn't seem like that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. So it could be, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, right? And so, uh, especially in, the, in what I just explained, okay. that if if you've been conditioned to not experience those other primary feeling states, and then everything kind of gets funneled through anger, well, yeah, in those cases, it could be sadness that then gets you know funneled over to anger, and then that's how you express it. But I, why, but I also want to impress upon folks is that anger is one of the four primary feeling states, so it can be secondary, but it doesn't. Okay. automatically by definition have to be and that's how a lot of anger management gets gets pushed out there is that anger is always a secondary emotion i you know i'm involved in various groups on social media and whatnot and you see this almost every day anger is a secondary emotion uh, it might be but it doesn't always have to be right so yeah okay so the example i gave would be yeah. 
a secondary yeah. emotion in that yeah, case. I mean, if, okay. If, okay. If, if something is happening that makes you feel sad, but you don't know how to express sadness, um, but you are very familiar with how to express anger, well then, yeah, that you are likely then to funnel that, uh, that feeling state through the one that you're connected most to. And if, if that person is most connected to anger, then that's where it's going to come through. Yeah. Okay. So approaching somebody with anger can be quite intimidating for people. Yep. So what would your advice be for people who feel like they want to approach a friend or a family member that has yep. potentially has anger issues, but they're feeling afraid or intimidated yep. by that person? Yeah. So what I would do is I talk about the, the escalation curve, uh, but this is primarily going to be audio. So just think of a volcano. Think of a volcano that's you know, a little bit of a rumbly top on it. It's not quite blown, uh, but so think about that. So at the very top of the volcano is where the signs are coming through that somebody's angry. That's the worst place to intervene. Okay, so if you try to be rational with somebody who's at that point, they've escalated that far, and you try to inter, uh, intervene with rationality, uh, don't get angry. Don't, don't hurt somebody. Uh, those, uh, if you do this, you're going to lose this privilege. When somebody has escalated, they've lost the part of their brain that's rational. So you have to learn to speak to the part of the brain where the emotions and feelings exist. And you do that by saying things like, it looks like you're angry. How can I help you? It looks like you're angry. Should I leave you alone for a little bit and come back later? So it's functionally trying to create distance. It's recognizing what it is that you think you're experiencing and angry, an angry person might come back. I'm not angry. Okay. You just, you just yeah. proven to me that you probably are. Right. But that's something that you don't say out loud. Right. But you just, you name it, especially in a younger person, you want to name the emotion. Cause again, that's part of that cycle of helping them understand it. So name it and then do something that is non-threatening, provide a non-threatening option for them. Now, again, I worked in corrections, so I understand what it's like to have uh, somebody who's angry in your face with weapons. So I, I'm not saying that one strategy is going to fit every, every scenario. Right. And so for somebody who says, yeah, but that might not work in, in, in my situation. Well, again, I've honed my craft in, in a corrections environment. Right. And so <laughs> I, I get it as far as yeah. that goes. So, but where you want to intervene then is when people come back to what's baseline. Right. So if you think about the, uh, the foothills on either side of the volcano, if somebody's rational, somebody has remorse, somebody's open to repairing a relationship, um, that's where you can have intervention. And that's when you want to say, hey, when that happened the other day, um, that was really scary. Or I didn't know if things were going to get really bad. How can we help keep that from ever happening again? You got to come from a, um, from a problem-solving perspective and not from a, a guilt or blaming perspective. Okay. What if someone is at their baseline. So they're not angry in the moment, but even at that level, they still can't acknowledge the issue. Yeah. So you have to try to understand what the lack of acknowledgement is. That's usually one of two things. One is they aren't aware, right? Their, their personal understanding and integration of the, of the primary feeling states is not there. So they don't actually have the capacity or the skill or the ability to self-reflect about their primary feeling states. That process to be self-reflective around primary feeling states is more innate in females than it is in males, right? Because okay. uh, uh, feminine energy leverages relationships more so than, than masculine energy, right? So it's more part of their experience 
to pick up on those things, right? It comes to them quicker, right? And there's, there's males that have, you know, biological males that are tilted more towards feminine energy, right? And so they, they get it too, yeah. right? But by and large, there's a fundamental difference there around that. So, so it's either a lack of self-reflective ability and lack of integration of the primary feeling states. Or the other thing that's going on is guilt and shame around it. So if they are aware and they've had a, a negative incident or whatever it is, and then somebody comes to baseline, well, admitting that they got angry and that they were out of control might come with a guilt or shame experience that prevents them from admitting it and or acknowledging it. And so that's, that's what I see goes on okay. um, when those baseline type uh, intervention fall flat is, you know, there's something else going on with the person that's preventing them from, from engaging in that conversation. Right. And that's where I'm saying the person who's trying to open the conversation or is trying to do the intervention, you can come at it from problem solving first and foremost, you'll have better luck with that. Okay. So in the situation where somebody is trying to intervene at the right time and it's just not going anywhere, what's your advice for setting healthy boundaries with that angry person. Yep. So if the engagement doesn't happen around the problem solving, then the, uh, the, the person who's, who's been on the receiving end of the anger needs to set boundaries and, and clear boundaries. You know, it's if, if this happens, then, then this is the response. It's if then, right. And so, and, but you have to be willing to carry out whatever the response is. Otherwise, you're just teaching the person who's struggling that you aren't really serious about about the the limits and boundaries that you're setting. But again, the way to couch that limit setting is around keeping people safe, that it's not about getting this other person in trouble or, again, trying to guilt or shame them. But it's like, if this happens, it creates an unsafe situation. And in order to keep it safe, this is how I need to deal with it, right? If you see it differently, then that's what I'm here for. But if you aren't willing to engage mm-hmm. in the conversation, then you're leaving it up to me to decide um, what's going to happen and how it's going to happen should an angry situation come up again. Does that make sense, Artie, or is that is that too... too yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, it definitely does. Um, so you touched on parenting yeah. a little bit, and you touched on, you know, m- boys specifically are told not to cry not to be so sensitive, things like that. So it seems like not doing that, allowing those emotions to take place for for little boys is important. But what other advice would you give to a parent who's trying to teach their child how to manage their anger? Yeah. So you have to look at, so parents, it's a, it's a two-part process. What What are you modeling? You know, parents need to step back and say, you know, how integrated am I around the primary feeling states, uh, especially again, I, I think that uh, fathers are modeling for for boys what it means to be a man, right? Fathers are modeling for daughters what it means to be in relationship with a man, and those things in childhood will endure; they will carry on for the most part for the rest of that child's life. So there's a heavy window of opportunity there, right, to shape somebody for you know for a long time, if not for the rest of their life. So, so it's self, it's getting parents to be self-reflective, 
right? Understanding their degree of integration there and what they are modeling for their own children. And then it's, it's actually, it's not that complicated. Uh, again, it's teaching kids mad, sad, glad, and afraid. When I do this, I'll have um, pictures of people showing the facial expressions, right? So that way they can yeah. show the picture and say, what, what do you think this person is feeling? And they can, you can have some fun with it. You can guess, right? Um, and then the conversation continues. Okay. So when you're feeling uh, mad, what can you do about it? And depending on how, how old the child is, if they're real little two to four to five, something around that, well, they may not know. And so parents need to come with a menu of options of things that are um, appropriate for a child to do, child to do uh, when they're angry. The reality of it is that type of intervention that I just described, helping people recognize and name their primary feeling states, and then coming up with acceptable responses to all of the primary feeling states is the same intervention that you would use for somebody who's two years old uh, to a grown person who's in their 30s and still struggling with anger. It's it's the same intervention. Right. But if you can do it okay. at a younger phase in life, uh, then the less likely this is going to be a, a trip up for them uh, moving forward. So it's name it, provide the appropriate options. And then when, when you have that conversation on board with the child, with the, the preteen, with the teen, with the young adult, with, with the adult, when you've had that conversation on board, then it allows you to coach the person in the moment. So if you've had the pre-established, here's what you can do when, when the situation arises, then the person who's dealing with the anger or is choosing to uh, intervene or respond, uh, you can say, hey, let's pick one of the things that we decided that we're okay to do in this moment. Well, I can't remember any of them. Is it okay for me to remind you? I don't know. Well, here's a list. Can I leave it here and let you look at it and I'll come back? I guess. <laughs> um, and so that's hmm. that's what can be done, right? So. Okay. Uh, do you feel like a single parent Households present any unique challenges for anger management with children? I mean, I mean, yeah, because there's only one parent that's um, steering the ship, right? Yeah. So I think that uh, a single parent dynamic, um, I mean, there's a lot of uh, excellent single parents, right? So I don't want to, I don't want to bag on somebody who finds themselves being a single parent. Yeah, definitely. Um, but if you have two parents that are on board uh, with this idea of teaching, training uh, children on the primary feeling states, then you've got twice the capacity to to do it, to do it well, and to do it you know effectively, right? So yeah, I think a single parent uh, has their work cut out for them, uh, no matter what the task is, you know, with with parenting. That being said, can it be done? Yeah, absolutely, it's, it's being done right now as you and I uh, speak, but. Yeah. does take a different type of prioritization and planning and follow through and all those things. In in a situation like that, would you recommend stronger partnering with non-family members, like yeah. maybe a stronger relationship with a teacher or counselor, yeah. something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, bringing in friends and family members that are um, supportive of, of you in your situation. Absolutely. It does take a village sometimes to, to raise a child, right? And so I, I'm I'm yeah. I'm not ignorant to that. Um, so in the in 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 situations where maybe the issue is coming more so at school, um, then you know as a parent, my recommendation is 
uh, aligning with the problem. School school's only concerned about one thing, quite honestly. It's about academic progress, academic achievement. Mm-hmm. So if you can align with a teacher or a principal or uh, a counselor at school around those things, like uh, I just want my child to be able to achieve as much academically as possible. Those are the buzzwords for them, right? And so let's how can we work together to uh, help this child, you know, not be so angry so that they can achieve academically. Uh, just avoid a tug of war with the school about who's to blame for this anger. That's that's what you want to avoid in that. So, a little tidbits okay. I can pick on that. Yeah. So how does our self-image uh, affect how we interact with the world with regard to mental health and anger? Yeah, I think self-image for me and my my conceptualization of uh, mental wellness or mental illness is is really at the core of it. That if you have poor self-image, then you are susceptible to a lot of negative things in life, including what gets called uh, a mental disorder. So if you haven't, uh, there's a lot of different ways to, to think and talk about this. I talk about it as a negative self-concept. If you and, and we all, uh, this is another thing, right? We all have um, what I call the negative default mindset uh, that takes a lot of work to overcome. Um, but p- people who struggle with anger, who ha- have the types of issues with anger where it's caused damage in their relationships, and then they even have a heavier layer of this negative self-concept on themselves, right? Um, mm. They're they're concerned that they're going to let people down again, right? Or they're convinced that they'll never be able to not be angry again. Um, uh, Or they will demonize those around me. I wouldn't be so angry if these people would stop doing this or that or, or, you know, and so that's, that's the negative self-concept that's at play with somebody who's struggling with anger and is also at play with, uh, in my opinion, um, if somebody is, is struggling with a uh, significant mental illness as well, uh, at some point you have to build up the person from the inside out. This is that resilience phase in my program, right? Um, mm-hmm. You have to build that person's uh, self-concept up. And when you do that, you build the resilience to lots of negative things in life, including having anger issues and including mental illness. Okay. So, Anger can sometimes be a symptom of a larger issue. Um, how do you guide clients in identifying whether their anger is a standalone concern or if it's a part of a more complex issue? Yeah. So I'm I'm listening for the need for um, forgiveness in their life. I mean that's that's my my construct for w- what fuels anger. And so the reality is the things that we have done in the past. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly—they're in the past, and and you you can't do anything to change that, right? But people will live in the past and let that dictate their here and now, and, and let that dictate their future. And the best in the best way that I know to help somebody out of that is to educate them about the need for forgiveness, and then to uh, guide them through a, a forgiveness process. And so I'm 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 listening for that, right? Um, my family will never accept me back because of this thing I did in the past. This person will never let me back in their life because of this thing in the past, right? It's always linked in the past. And mm-hmm. so helping people understand that living in the past 
is not going to get them what they want uh, in their life, right? So that's that's what I'm listening for is to to what extent uh, uh, forgiveness is lacking in their journey, uh, and then helping them to realize the the power that can that exists in embracing forgiveness. Okay, I like that because. I mean, if you define yourself by your past, there's no reason to be different going forward because you're already, you're already defined, right? Yeah. I tell my boys at, uh, in the corrections facility, um, most of the time when they were in isolation, talking them, talking to them through a door, you know, through a window and they would, they would talk about this. They were living in the past. And I would say, I, this is what I would say to them. I said, you're, you as a person are more about the decision that you're going to make and less about the decisions that you've already made, mm. right? So you, you can't always, you're not always going to be able to escape the consequences of decisions that you've made in the past, right? But the person who you are and the person that you're going to become uh, is going to be forged out of the decisions that you're going to make right now and moving forward, right? But if you're if you're making decisions based out of the past, like just like you said, you're going to be stuck in and that same situation or whoever that person was from the past. Okay. So how does the concept of emotional intelligence tie into mental health and anger? Yeah. I think all, all of what I've been talking about is, is my slant on emotional intelligence. So yeah. uh, when I was in my dis- dissertation phase, going through my doctoral program, emotional intelligence was going to be the construct that I studied things happen for a reason. And I ended up abandoning that project. Um, but suffice it to say is I did, I did a deep dive on the literature and the research and, and had a lot of the, uh, the dissertation written up to the experimental part of it. Um, so it is something that, um, I'm familiar with. So I think a lot of what we've talked about in our conversation here is my slant on emotional intelligence, right? Okay. Um, in the world of psychology, Emotional intelligence has multiple definitions, which makes it really hard to study. And so then what gets filtered out into pop psychology um, may or may not be helpful. But I think the best platform for emotional intelligence as it as it applies to anger uh, and or other types of mental wellness endeavors, it's integrating the four, the four primary feeling states, mad, sad, glad, and afraid. When I was introduced to that by my clinical mentor, the assertion that was made that I believe I, I believe is true. I mean, I, rationally and logically, I, I won't say that anything is 100% of the true 100% of the time, or very little is, right? Um, but this is one of the things where I'm pretty close, that anybody that's struggling in life, no matter what the struggle is, in some way, somehow, is either overconnected to a primary feeling state or is underconnected to a primary feeling state, at least one or more. So I'm always listening for that. And that's why it's such a huge part of my anger resolution program. So that's my slant that if people were fully integrated around the primary feeling states, then they would have all the emotional intelligence that they need. So you've been in the mental health field for quite a long time. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen over your career? Yeah, great question. So you know, I've started my career in 1999. 
which was the the kind of smack dab in the middle of the tough on crime era and now we're completely out of the tough on crime era as a, as a whole so that's been a, a big shift um finished graduate school in 2005 and i'm on the west coast in oregon so um everything having to be evidence-based was the was the initiatives that swept through and became law in Oregon as well, that you know, a certain percentage of dollars that come from federal funding had to be used on treatments and interventions that were evidence-based, right? So there was a lot of backflips and somersaults, I guess, that were that were done in that era to make sure that you know everything was evidence-based. Now I would just say, you know, uh, one way to kind of paint where we're at now is the rest- restorative justice model. I think that's one of the things that kind of is painting the backdrop of society and how we're responding to things like crime and criminality and incarceration. Definitely a big shift uh, that we're seeing. I think more directly towards the field of mental health and counseling, um, we kind of have a couple major shifts uh, in the addictions field. It was the embracing harm reduction model, which, you know, represents that the idea that one way to help people and help people effectively, according to the evidence, is not to insist upon abstinence at, on the front end, but helping people taper down their their use. Um, that's something that uh, represented a, a major shift. Um, uh, Counseling theory and, and modes of counseling embracing spirituality is a major shift. Uh, accepting that spirituality is part of the human experience. Uh, you know, our, our origins in mental health and psychology and counseling go back to Freud. Uh, Freud wrote a book, The Future and of Illusion. And part of his thesis is that uh, uh, religiosity is the primary driver of neurosis, neuroses. Hmm. And so the more that people could disconnect from this illusion of religion than the less uh, neurosis they would experience, right? So that's been the backdrop of uh, mental health and counseling since Freud's days. And it's been since about the uh, early nineties, which is when you're going to read things about uh, third wave CBT. Uh, it's being responsible as embracing religion and spirituality as part of the human experience and should be viewed as a resource uh, to a person when they're seeking uh, mental health services and support. So, oh, and then there's some mantra changes, right? Like um, mantras around addiction. It's a major philosophical shift is um, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction mm-hmm. is connection, right? So it's the idea that a, a, a lack of meaningful human connection is what drives addiction. So that's been pivotal. Uh, you'll see that um, uh, famous YouTube talk about it. Uh, I think it's Jordan uh, Jordan Hari. I think is his name. Uh, probably butchered it, uh, butchered it, but you can see it. You can type that in. The opposite of addiction is connection, and you'll see the, the TED talk. And then in the world of trauma, it's the the philosophical um, switch has moved from when you're trying to understand trauma, uh, you don't ask what's wrong with you you ask what happened to you um, which you know doesn't sound like much but it's more than semantics it's a 
it's a different mode of inquiry philosophically if you if you come from a uh, an understanding of i don't think that you chose to be this way like i think if you had more ability to influence what happened around you then you might not arrive the way that you are right now so uh, not what what's wrong with you uh, but what what's yeah. happened to you so those are all some big shifts that I think, I think I spoke more so from a philosophical standpoint, but that's where my mind goes when, when I hear a question like that. Okay. So have you seen, you, you spent a lot of time in corrections. Have you seen that field change over time significantly? Yep. Cause a lot of what, you know, the tough on crime stuff, that's more dealing with the prosecution, stuff like that. So the, the actual corrections aspect has that changed? Yeah, it's changed tremendously. Tremendously, it's actually come full circle for me. And so, weaving into our understanding of corrections, the idea of uh, development and brain development it has been huge, particularly in the last 10, 10 or so years. So, um, understanding that brains don't fully develop um, for males until their late 20s, early 30s. And you hear most people echo this, this um, talking point. They will say, say things like, uh, brains don't fully develop until age 25. Well, that's true when you mix males and females together. You separate males mm -hmm. and females, it's actually young, younger, earlier for females, and later for boys. So making sure that people understand that, um, that uh, for males, it's, it's actually later in life. Um, and so okay. using that brain development information to inform policy and practice, uh, inform sentencing guidelines. And in Oregon, we just passed a law a couple of years ago. That's where I'm from. Uh, Senate Bill 1008. And I believe it's 1008. I could be wrong. <laughs> um, I've stepped away from that world, finished that career. So things get fuzzy now and that's okay with me. But basically what that new bill says is that in the prosecution and sentencing determinations, that the youthful state of a child's development must be considered in the process, right? And so, uh, so we when that when that law took place, I think there was a little bit of a window of some retroactive reach, and so some people were able to say, by looking at the court record, there's nothing that was mentioned about you know my brain development in 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 the deliberation over this course, so they would get new trials, resentencing, uh, a new shake at it, so. That's been huge and there's merit to it, right? I mean, there's merit that uh, uh, the, the, the later parts of the brain development are our capacities to uh, be rational, to be logical. And for children, teens and adults, it's where consequential thinking comes online and empathy, right? So uh, again, for boys, males, age 30, what that means is, is that until age 30, True consequential thinking does not come on board. True empathy does not come on board. Um, that person's major or maximum capacity for being rational is not on board until age 30, 28, 30 in, in there, right? So, so you're seeing more and more of this kind of brain development ACEs, you know, understanding the uh, impact of the adversive childhood experiences study uh, has been sweeping through uh, schools, communities, uh, anything involved with youth, uh, you're going to get educated on ACEs and the impact of ACEs uh, as well. So, uh, so I think it's, you know, this kind of sum it up. It's 
it's less about punishing and it's more about understanding and supporting. And we're kind of in this messy transition phase, right? Where, um, yes, I think that we'll make big societal shifts where we have the, the potential to by coming to our problems with understanding and support. But we're dealing with a whole segment of society that's used to punishment. And so they expect punishment, whether it works or not. Right. And so uh, that's kind of what's going on at this point. uh, According to me, I'm just one person. It actually makes sense that uh, men are fully developed until their late 20s. It makes sense in my life. (laughs) I can. Yeah. I I mean, it makes sense in mine too. I'm 38 and I feel like I've had a, you know, eight to 10 years of really actually like knowing what the hell I'm doing. So, uh, yeah, if yeah, you want a case study sense. on this, um, look at look at Vietnam and who volunteered to go into special forces in Vietnam. Um, hmm. And so they were they they were struggling to find officers that were willing to volunteer for it. Uh, the officers that were over age thirty were like, no way. The ones that were fresh out of you know officer training, they were like, yes, because they were twenty three, twenty four, twenty five years old, right? And so. <laughs> Yeah, I've listened to people on podcasts reflect on that. Like, you know, the only only reason why I did that is because I was young and dumb, and <laughs> I had no, I had no idea. Uh, my my ability to sift through the, you know, the realities of what I was signing up for were limited at that point in time. This one person went on to be a psychologist, right? And so he was studying himself, you know, retrospectively. So, yeah, yeah, it seems like pretty common for people that join the military typically it's 18 to 20 years old yep. when people get into it and i don't i don't think most people at that age are really yep. able to fully yep. process what they're what they're yeah. taking part in yeah yeah another case study for this is uh in the u.s at the county sheriff level if you enter in law enforcement and go through the academy and, and you're a sheriff or even you know it would you probably wouldn't go state police i think there's higher standards for that but uh, it used to be the case where you could be you know 19, 20, 21 years old, go through you know, a police academy and become a sheriff. And when you're, when you're a sheriff on patrol, you're covering a large territory and you might be the only person out there that can respond. And there was a lot of 18 to 25 year olds that were out there and with armed with a firearm and things didn't always go well. And so there's a lot of uh, response to that, that maybe again, based on brain development research, maybe we ought to rethink, mm-hmm. you know, having the sole responder in a given, you know, territory being somebody that doesn't have a fully developed brain. Yeah. Do you have any stories from your time in corrections that really stand out to you as a great example of what could go wrong or what could go right? Yeah. Got lots of them. We don't have that much time, but, uh, um, I think the thing that I want to share here is, and, and especially for people who maybe are working in mental health, maybe they uh, have a career there. Or, uh, who, Because in mental health, we talk about myths. Uh, we, we spin tales about disorders, types of people that can't be helped and can't be reached. Personality disorders get, it's almost like a you get a black mark on your forehead if you have a personality disorder and be ex- excluded from programs, you get deemed untreatable. I've seen it. I've seen it where, yes, you can, right? And it, it always comes down to relationship. This is where the addiction mantra that I talked about before is super important. The opposite of sobriety uh, or addiction is not sobriety, it's connection, right? 
So you do the hard work of truly establishing a relationship with the person. That is going to be the foundation for any change to happen and happen for the long term. It doesn't matter what the situation is. We're talking about mental health. You talked about, do I have stories? Yes, I have, I have dozens of stories. Um, but the commonality across all of those stories was my ability to establish a meaningful relationship with that person. And that's mm-hmm. easier said than done. Uh, people that struggle with mental illness or people that struggle uh, in the correction system repel relationship because they've learned that it's sometimes it's a self survival mechanism, right? When, when I get close to people, things don't usually go my way. So it's better for me to, to distance or repel relationship. And so, and that's what we see on the outside of the fence. This is what you see in community mental health. Um, is that you're still going to see the same types of people that still have the same amount of damage and destruction in their past, that still have that same kind of need to repel relationship. They just haven't gone the juvenile route, the delinquency route, the criminal route. Those people in community mental health get deemed not amenable to treatment, not likely to respond to treatment. Really probably what's at play there is that agency, that program, that clinician, hasn't fully embraced the idea of what is it going to take for me to establish a relationship with this person? That's what I would say is the lesson learned um, for my 20, almost 23 years in corrections. So if you don't have a relationship established, good luck. You're you're not going to get much else done. Okay. Thank you. So I'm a big fan of uh, mindfulness and meditation. It's helped me with my journey to, you know, get past anger issues I've had in the past. Um, how can those tools help to create a healthier response to anger? And and how can people incorporate those tools into their lives better? Yeah, I love it. Um, so, and again, mindfulness meditation is uh, part of what I was talking about in terms of major shifts that I've seen in my career uh, in in working in mental health. Um, so I'm glad that you brought it up. Mindfulness and meditation is a discipline and it's not something that, you know, there's tons of literature and I I teach to my students. Uh, Mindfulness yoga is just as effective, if not more effective than taking an SSRI for things like depression or anxiety, right? Literature is there, Mm. right? But just like taking one pill, uh, SSRI isn't going to help your depression or anxiety. Doing one, actually, actually, Doctor Human uh, Andrew Huberman has a podcast that says that one, um, one seven-minute mindfulness session can impact uh, ADHD in a positive way for the rest of their life. So I, I, I will say there's a caveat mm-hmm. there that, but it's a discipline. It's a habit. You have to adopt it, and you have to make it a regular part of your life, and you have to be committed to it for it to really um, help you over the long run, right? So a lot of people, again, will apply the strategy in the tool, but they don't understand what it's supposed to do for them, right? And I don't know, Artie, what your experience has been, but one of the things that mindfulness and meditation can do is teach you about you, right? Mm -hmm. It's helping you learn who you are, going back to an earlier part of our conversation, right? 
when people are um, unsure of who they are, what their core identity is, they're, um, then they're more susceptible for things, negative things in life, including um, a, a mental disorder, mental illness. So meditation, mindfulness, um, one of the primary benefits is it's teaching you about you. It's teaching you to understand who you are. You know, it's uh, Michael Singer in the book, uh, The Untethered Soul. When you ask the question, is there anybody in there, right? And if he responded, yes, right? Well, that's, that's the thing that mindfulness and meditation is helping you get in contact with, get in touch with. So for me, I like Wim Hof breathing. You know, I'll start most days off doing a, a, a kind of a combo exercise, right? Of Mindfulness meditation through a breathing practice and um, just learning to silence yourself and still yourself. It's all about figuring out who you are. And I think that pays off dividends. But yeah, one mindfulness session isn't going to do it. You're going to have to commit to a process around it. Yeah, one, one thing about that. So meditation is something that eluded me for a long time. Uh, it just, it didn't make sense how to do it. And then I learned how to meditate on the breath. And one of the things I feel like is helpful is taking it in small chunks, like not, not trying to do a 30 minute session your first time. It could be just a few minutes. I mean, I've been meditating for several years now and I still only do about seven minutes every morning. Um, it's just what fits into my life. Well, and I think, uh, taking something and incorporating it, even if it's in smaller doses, but that you'll actually do is better yep. than trying to do something that's just too much that you'll drop after a week. Yeah, absolutely. It's the, um, it's figuring out kind of where your tolerance for it is. Right. Um, like you said, most people aren't going to go out to shoot and be able to do 30, 40 minutes, an hour or two hours of, of meditation. Right. And newsflash the, the Buddhist monks that, you know, brought this to our world as we know it now, they weren't able to do that either at first. Right. It took, it, that's why it takes so much practice. Right. And so, Figuring out what your baseline tolerance is for it. If you can only stand it for a minute, perfect. Right? Yeah. Do it for a minute. And give yourself grace, self-compassion, right? That's that's the uh, one of the philosophies, one of the schools of, of Buddhism, right, is the is self-compassion. And uh, if you just got a minute, just... And, and I like the way that DBT, uh, Dialectical Behavior Therapy, uh, teaches and trains um, mindfulness, right? Um, be silent for a minute. And just find a noise in your environment that maybe you weren't initially aware of and just try to focus on that noise. Could be a car going by, could be the wind, could be a neighbor mowing the yard, whatever it is. Just find find a noise in your environment and just try to focus only on that for the coming minute, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's like a muscle. You'll get better and better at it over time. Yeah, definitely. So... In our society over the last few decades, we've seen the perception of certain drugs change. Um, I'm thinking marijuana, psychedelics, ketamine, um, things like that. Do you see potential for any of those things? Or do you do you feel like they're things that are best avoided in your mental health journey? Yeah, so I'm in Oregon. So we passed the law that basically allowed, um, decriminalized most drugs and allowed research on things like ketamine and psilocybin and whatnot. So, um, I'm a fan, uh, 
you know, uh, MDMA helping PTSD is on its third or fourth clinical trial um, um, in the Veterans uh, Administration and the FDA. So you don't make it to the third or fourth clinical trial unless there was some evidence to suggest that it, it was helpful and impactful, right? And so, um, and I think that um, whenever there's a, a an evolution of a new type of psychotropic, it's it's based on the idea that they're trying to do better than the previous versions of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, this kind of the second wave and third wave SSRIs, if you look, do your own research, don't believe me, but you know, I, I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze, uh, meaning that the Paxils, the Zolofs, the Prozacs, uh, the side effects that come along with those um, aren't understood by the consumer. Unfortunately, they're not under, understood well by most prescribers. And even more unfortunately, the downside of some of those medications has been absolutely covered up by the pharmaceutical companies. So, um, Things like psilocybin, ketamine, MDMA, um, they tend to be um, shorter action. Uh, the side effects tend to be less, um, and the and the research supporting their effectiveness is increasing. I, I mentioned, you know, Andrew Huberman in his podcast a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, here's a shot across his bow. If you look, if you look at his early discussions about this topic, um, he was very dismissive about it. He was very uh, kind of the language was, uh, why are you okay to take um, psilocybin uh, when it alters your brain, but you're not okay with taking an SSRI that when it alters your brain? And they kind of yeah. uh, made some fun about that. If you listen to his recent videos, interviews around it, he basically came out and admitted that he was in fear of losing his authority and position within Stanford should he come out and, and embrace and endorse some of these alternative therapies. So, um, so I think. It's not just me. I think you're going to see more and more um, uh, widely adopted uh, acceptance around what we're calling now alternative therapies. Um, I've steered several people that direction when they are clearly presenting as treatment resistant, meaning typical or standard treatment interventions, talk therapy, behavioral therapies, and standard treatment uh, through uh pharmacology has not been effective right I've, I've steered plenty of people that way yeah um you mentioned that the negative side effects of certain drugs like ssris is covered up in the media and mm-hmm. stuff like that and i tend to agree when we see mass shootings one of the things we never hear about is what medications those people are on um mm-hmm. and it I mean, these pharmaceutical companies are often paying the advertising bills for the media companies doing the stories on them. So do you feel like there's a connection between violence and some certain drugs like that? So there's a black box warning on those SSRIs, right? And there's a process that you have to go through in order to get a black box warning on those medications. So what am I talking about? If you look at uh, Zoloft, Paxil, Prozac, you know, those standard kind of run of the mill everyday SSRIs that people are taking all the time uh, on the box itself, on the bottle itself, on the pamphlet that comes in there, uh, there's going to be a black box and it's going to say something like this. Um, If you experience suicidal or homicidal feelings, um, 
while taking this medication, uh, notify your doctor immediately. Okay. Yeah. That those black box warnings did not come when the medications were first approved. Hmm. Right. So in order for that to go in bold black box on the box, on the pill, on the pamphlet, it had to come in response to negative reactions to the medication. Okay. So whatever, what, whether or not I think that there's a link or not, I'm going to say is irrelevant. The black box warnings half are, were put there based on um, verifiable negative reactions to the medication. Yeah. And it had to happen at, an, at enough frequency in order for it to not be dismissed as chance um, or, you know, yeah, as chance, right? So they had to prove that this occurs at enough rate that it's beyond chance for that black box warning to go on those medications. So that would be uh, evidence that I would admit exhibit A. Okay, so beyond that, <clears throat> you will hear different narratives um, around people that do heinous things in society and whether or not they were on medications or not. I don't know that we will ultimately know that answer, uh, but I do know that most, if not all of them, you know, let's go 1980s and, and moving forward, uh, have had some sort of contact with the mental health system. Hmm. And the way that the medical model dominates the mental health system, if they have had contact with the mental health system, I can almost guarantee you that they were at least prescribed some sort of psychotropic medication. Whether or not they took it or not, I can't prove it. We won't be able to prove that, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know that they, uh, you know, Adam Lanza in the in the, um, the 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 Newtown shooting, right? Did we, did we do a blood draw to look at his as blood levels for SSRIs? I don't know that that's part of the process when when something like that happens. I, uh, it seems reasonable that his blood probably was drawn, but are they screening for things like psychotropics? I don't know. Yeah. So. Uh, my personal and professional opinion based on seeing thousands of people, both in corrections and in my private practice and in my personal network of people leads me to believe in the, in the research that's out there. Dr. Irving Kirsch um, filed a freedom of information act to get the pharmaceutical companies to release the trials uh, that were used to pass the FDA hurdles. All of that leads me to believe that, um, there's more potential for harm than good around most psychotropic medita medications, especially for things that are mild or moderate disorders. Mm. The, the asymmetry is to the downside in terms of the benefit. I'm happy to, I mean, I'm not happy to hear you say that, but it, it uh, validates what I've believed for quite a long time. And I agree that I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of it completely because there's too much financial financial incentive to shut down those conversations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when, uh, when Prozac was developed, it was again, the idea that they were trying to do better than the tricyclic antidepressants, 
the first trials were so dismal that like Germany totally backed out of it and said, we, we are not going to, you know, recommend this medication to the entire country. Mm. Right. Uh, and the way that they shortcut it around it, and this is verifiable, is they got uh, physicians to write uh, case studies about using the medication, got those published in journals and used that as the evidence uh, that the medications were effective. So they totally yeah. sidestepped the clinical trial aspect because their initial clinical trials showed that it wasn't any uh, more effective than the tricyclic antidepressants. And that's how, that's the story of how Prozac became a household name. And we're mm -hmm. giving it to our dogs. I'm pointing my dog down here too. And we yeah. give it to our animals. And I think, gosh, where's the black box warning when you give it to your pets? And maybe that yeah. pet freaks out and bites you. I don't know. Yeah. A dog <laughs> can't exactly tell you it's having uh, crazy thoughts. You yeah. Know? homicidal or suicidal ideation right yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so mainstream media tends to thrive off of negativity uh, what's your advice for people who want to stay informed but they also want to take care of their mental health wow um stay informed and also take a, uh um I, so we're we're i'm a big fan of educating about getting your foundational health dialed in and in place. And so for me, it's diet, sleep, exercise, and positive mental attitude. So if you're overweight, um, then getting your diet in place is important, right? If you're anxious, nervous, depressed, angry, whatever it is, then you need to look at your media diet, right? And what you consume media-wise uh, for your brain and in your mind is just as important, it's just as impactful, influential as what you put in your mouth for nutrients and, and physical health wise. Right. And so yeah. uh, when, when the walking dead was the show to watch, I never watched it. No, no blame or shame. I just didn't have room for a show like that in my life. Uh, I was supervising graduate students who were out, you know, practicum students, internship students. And uh, I get to see feedback loops of what's going on out there. And, a lot of little kids on playgrounds chasing each other around saying that you're going to kill them and cut their heads off mm. and you know how yeah. alarming that is. But it's like, huh, bet you that kid was plunked down and was watching, you know, walking dead <laughs> and you know, mom and dad didn't really think much about it. Right. And so uh, I think you have to realize that if you're plugged into the media and the news all the time, it's um, fear cells, blood cells. And so that's what you're going to see. More times than not, you're going to see things that are meant to make you fearful, meant to make you angry, and meant to sell you stuff, right? Yeah. And so um, know that going in. I had an old fuddy-duddy professor, uh, great guy, um, but he would – I don't know if he did this intentionally or if he just forgot, but he would always work in every lecture uh, the reason why television was invented. And uh, he'd put his hands up like Nixon did. You know, I'm not a crook. He would say – Television was invented for one reason. And then he'd tail off in suspense. Yeah, we know. To sell you products. So no matter what you're watching, you need to ask yourself, what am I being sold? Right? And so uh, that stuck with me, obviously, that because I wasn't I've been, you know, almost 20 years removed from college. And um, but yeah, that's what people need to understand is that if you're plugged into the media, uh, social media, listening to the news, talk radio. It's there to, to, to sell you fear. It's there to confirm your bias. Um, and it's there to sell you stuff. And I'm reducing that. So how, how can you stay informed? Um, pick, pick one, schedule it. 
right? If you're concerned that if you don't do, if you don't stay informed, you're going to fall behind. Okay. Dedicate 15 minutes a day to plugging into one news source. Set a timer. You know, I got a, I got a tomato timer. Uh, set a timer. And when that timer uh, is done, move on to something else, right? Yeah. Like you don't have to feel guilty about it. You know, this is my 15 minutes. Was, for me, what I did is I, I turned on certain Twitter notifications that were news-based. And so I would see the notifi- notification come through. And if I really wanted to know more about it, then I would have to go through, unlock my phone, go to the app, go to that uh, notification. It's X now. I know it's not Twitter. And then dial in. So there was a lot of things that I had to uh, step through in order to actually get to that piece of news. But for the most part, it was just headlines. Right. And then I would know, Oh yeah. You know? uh, Yeah. So, uh, you know, what, what is it? What, what is it serving in my life? Is it serving me? Yes or no. Uh, And then how, how can I um, optimize it and minimize it? So that way I don't have to be plugged into it all the time. Right. Because the more that you're plugged into mainstream media, the worse off your mental health is going to be. Hopefully that's what you were looking for. But that's what I say. Pay attention to your media diet. Yeah. So would your advice be pretty similar for social media? Like just give yourself limits yeah, on same, how long you're on deal, it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not, I use it. I use it to, uh, two reasons to, to, to build my audience and to spread positivity. Yeah. Those, those are my bumpers. Uh, uh, shout out to Nick Peterson in the book bumpers. Um, so when I find myself a kind of in a mindless scroll, I'll, I'll shake my, is this for building my audience or spreading positivity? Nope, it's not. So I'll either turn it off or, or move on to something else. Awesome. Um, I don't know what somebody else's bumpers would be, but I would, I would say establish them, right? Yeah. Figure out what's your purpose. Social media's purpose is to get, is to get your eyeballs to stick to the screen for as long as possible. Yeah. Right. That's exactly what it is. And so, um, are you going to mindlessly uh, let yourself fall into that trap or are you going to be in control of your eyeballs? It's up to you. So do you have any book recommendations for somebody who's starting their path or or early in their path or even further along in their mental health journey or anger management journey? Um, So when it comes to personal development, self-help books, there's two types. There's a story type and then there's um, process or manual type. So just know that going into it that, um, so I'll try to give one of each. So a story type book that I recommend all the time is a book called Chop Wood, Carry Water. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's going to teach you life principles that are important, critical life principles, but it's going to teach you in the form of telling a story. Yeah. Um, Energy Bus is another one. It's going to teach you important life principles in the form of a story. Um, manual-based ones. Um, it's a book called, got a crass name, right? But it's called Unfuck Yourself by Jordan Bishop. Hmm. It's it's more of a straightforward manual for, you know, how, how to, uh, his follow-up book was um, Stop Doing That Shit. <laughs> um, uh, the Road, the book called The Road to The Road Less Stupid is a great book too, hmm. but it's more, it's more process yeah. and, and manual oriented step-by-step. Right. So, uh, but the book, the book that I would point anybody to is a book called bumpers by Nick Peterson. Um, it's three bucks on uh, Amazon, uh, or you can go to freebumpersbook.com and you can get a free copy with it in the follow-up, um, 
resources, video resources. Uh, when I'm working with a coaching client, uh, that's a book that I will always point them to uh, in order to uh, get figure themselves out and get their life on track. Awesome. Nick, thank you so much for answering all these questions today. Yeah. Uh, it's been awesome talking to you. I want to hand it over to you to let you tell everyone how to reach you, where they can find your material, and anything else you want to share. Yeah, absolutely. So I am focused on helping men to get complete control over anger so that they can repair the relationships that have been damaged in their life. And so that that is my my primary aim and focus. And the best way to do that is to go to uh, angerresolution.xyz. And when you go there, it's going to be an invitation to join my free Facebook group. Right? So it's a free group um, that I'm in there and active with on a regular basis. You get access to parts of my program, the best parts of my program for free. And so for anybody who's looking for help around getting complete control over anger, um, that's what I would invite you to do is to find that free Facebook group. And you can do that through angerresolution.xyz. Awesome. Thank you. Anything else you want to share? Um, no, I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, that suffices it, you know, outside of a general encouragement that uh, um, personal responsibility is, is where it's going to be. Yeah, there's a lot of factors in your life that um, um, lead up to where you find yourself currently. Um, but only you cares about you, um, maybe with the exception of your mom. Your, your mom might, might care more about you than you do. Uh, but out, outside of that rare exception, uh, you have to be your biggest fan. You have to be your biggest accountability. Uh, you have to be your biggest reason for taking that next step forward. Awesome. Nick, thank you so much for the conversation today. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thoughtfully Mindless. If you enjoyed this episode, it helps a lot if you share this. And if you have any feedback, you can find me on Twitter at TMConvos. Thank you for listening. Until next time.